I'm Tavis Smiley. In this hour, a conversation with human and civil rights activist and writer Kevin Powell about his new book, The Kevin Powell Reader, Essential Writings and Conversations. We'll also discuss his latest piece for Vibe about Martin Scorsese's epic film, Killers of the Flower Moon, which premiered uh, and released in theaters over the weekend. At the film's premiere, Osage film consultant Christopher Cope shared uh, his complicated feelings about the film. I was nervous about the release of the film. Now that I've seen it, uh, I have some strong opinions. As an Osage, I really wanted this to be from the perspective of Molly and what her family experienced. But I think it would take an Osage to do that. Martin Scorsese not being Osage, I think he did a great job representing our people. But this story is being told, this history is being told almost from the perspective of uh, Ernest Burkhart. And they kind of give him this conscience and they kind of depict that there's love. But when somebody conspires to murder your entire family, uh, that's not love. That's not love. That's, that's just beyond abuse. And I think in the end, the question that you can be left with is how long will you be complacent with racism? How long will you go along with something and not say something, not speak up? How long will you be complacent? And I think that's because this film was not made for an Osage audience. It was made for everybody not Osage. For those that have been disenfranchised, they can relate. But for other countries, you know, that have their acts and their histories of oppression, this is an opportunity for them to ask themselves this question of morality. And so that's that's how I feel. That's my, That's how I feel about this film. Uh, that's his perspective as a member of the Osage Nation. Kevin Powell calls the film a masterpiece, even with its flaws. He believes the film is the single most important work of art Scorsese has ever created. And that's a whole lot, <laughs> given uh, Scorsese's body of work. Powell goes on to say that it is the first movie depiction of a Native American uh, that I've absorbed in my entire life, made by a white American that dutifully humanizes this resolutely proud but beleaguered community. I'm happy to talk about the, the film uh, and his new book right now that Kevin Powell uh, joins us uh, on this program. Kevin, good to have you back. How are you, sir? Kevin? Okay. Thank you so much. I'm here. There so you much. go. There you go. There you go. I couldn't yeah. hear you. You doing all right, man? Thank you so much. I'm good. Thank you so much for having me again. Thank no, you. it's good to have you on. Um, let me start with the with the piece. Uh, we'll get to your book uh, in this conversation. Got you for the hour, so a lot to unpack uh, about the book, about the film, and other things that we can get into uh, in this hour. Love uh, love getting your your take on a variety of things, given that you are a public intellectual. Uh, but 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 the film. I, I gave uh, to the audience some sense of what you wrote in, in your piece. L- let me start with that that latter part because we've all had this same experience. We've all lived lives uh, and grown up in a world in a in a country where we have always been subject to this particular depiction of Native Americans. And you lay that out in your piece. And here you come for the first time in your life as a as a grown black man, a fully grown black man, for the first time in your life seeing a project that does in fact give a different take on Native Americans. Of course there was Dances with Wolves that Kevin Costner did some years ago, but just give me a sense of how uh, having been indoctrinated in the way that you were and I am and we all have been frankly about Native Americans, you came to see this film a little bit a, a, a bit differently. Well, you know, as I say in, in the piece, um um you know, in the first paragraph, I was brainwashed. I was badly brainwashed about the story of cowboys and Indians that 
indigenous people, Native Americans, just gave up their land. Like I said, uh, Manhattan Islands, we all were taught or lied to for $24 in trinkets. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is very derogatory uh, version of the, of, of the history. Meanwhile, I'm sure you, you grew up and I grew up where we lived in environments where we heard black folks say that they had indigenous Native American blood in them, but they mm-hmm. weren't. Some of us knew where it came from us, some of us didn't. You know, and so for me, I think, it, you know, two things can exist at the same time. I can acknowledge that this is a really incredibly made film, just like the indigenous brother, uh, Christopher Coate, that you quoted, the soundbite we just heard, which is a very powerful soundbite. I'm glad you played that you all played that. But you could also say at the same time, why are we still centering white men the way we do in these films, which is what he ultimately did with the Leonardo DiCaprio character, even mm-hmm. with all these indigenous people in the movie, as I say in a piece in the article and from Vibe magazine, there's over a hundred people of indigenous descent casted. There's indigenous consultants like Christopher Coate. You know, Lily Gladstone is amazing as the lead actress. But imagine how different the film could have been if it was an indigenous director or co-director, and then you actually had an indigenous co-writer sitting there with 80-year-old Martin Scorsese, a white brother, and 78-year-old Eric Roth, a white brother, telling the story about indigenous people. Imagine how different the film could have been, how more, much more transformative it could have been. Mm-hmm. Give me more. Uh, I don't want to spoil the film for those who have not seen it. It just came out this weekend. But give me more uh, about the way in which um, uh, Scorsese um, centers white men uh, in the film. Of course, we know the film stars DiCaprio. Uh, uh, you mentioned earlier Robert De Niro. But just give me some sense of how these white men are once again centered uh, in the film. Well, they're wholly developed. I mean, that's the, always the problem. When you talk about black folks, indigenous folks, Latinx folks, Asian folks, any people of color, oftentimes we're not depicted as whole human beings. You know, one of the things that one of my friends, she, her name is Dr. Twyla Baker. She's a, a, the president of a historically indigenous college out in the Dakotas. She said to me, I'm tired of seeing films that depict indigenous women as their sad, tragic victims and they're dying. She said there's so much joy and laughter in our communities, et cetera. And you know what I thought when she was saying this to me after seeing the film this week? And she, she sounded the way we sound, like you never see black joy with black folks in a lot of the things mm-hmm. that we don't make. You don't see who we are as whole human beings. You know, we can't be anything other than ball players or hustlers, you know what I'm saying, mm-hmm. or entertainers, you know. So that's part of the problem. I get to see the full emotional scope of the two main characters, even though they are villains, whereas Lily Gladstone's character, Molly, and her sisters, you don't even see a full conversation with them as indigenous women. You don't see the, you don't really see indigenous people talking beyond the main character in a, in a very, in more than a few lines here and there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so it, 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 it reinforces a film that's supposed to tackle racism actually helps to reinforce yeah. racism unwittingly because it keeps doing that. And yet you and the New York Times critic and many other critics have called this uh, a masterpiece. Uh, you called it Scorsese's best piece of work. Uh, and again, that's a serious career that you're critiquing to call this the best piece. So I want to hear when we come forward why everybody's calling it a masterpiece. If if uh, if it doesn't uh, advance uh, the concerns of the Osage Nation in the way that they think it should, if it does, in fact, once again, center white men in the telling of the story. And, and from what I've read, Scorsese went to the Osage Nation. They stopped script development because he was concerned that it was telling the story too much from the perspective of these white men. That's not what he wanted. So he went to the Osage Nation and got their involvement and got their input so that it wouldn't do that. And yet I hear you and others saying it still does that anyway. And yet, I repeat, people are calling it a masterpiece. Why is it a masterpiece? We'll talk more about that. We'll get to his book later in this hour. We're talking to Kevin Powell right now on Tavis Smiley. Truth. Speaking the truth. truth. This, this is the Tavis Smiley Show. 
helping to make you the most knowledgeable person in your circle of friends. This is Tavis Smiley. Continuing our conversation now with uh, Kevin Powell, talking about this uh, new film from uh, Martin Scorsese that everybody is calling a masterpiece. It's called Killers of the Flower Moon, released in, what, 3,600-plus theaters over the weekend. Uh, No doubt will be uh, talked about uh, greatly during award season uh, if this actor strike ever comes to a close. We'll talk about that, by the way, uh, at the bottom of our third hour with Nichelle Turner, the co-host of Entertainment Tonight, uh, will join us um, at the bottom of our three to talk about that and this Jada Pinkett mess and some other stuff we'll get to uh, talking, <laughs> talking, talking entertainment. We'll get we'll get uh, Kevin's take on that, too. Trust me, in this hour, it's on my list of things I want to get his uh, get his take on. Uh, but we're talking about it right now, the, the Martin Scorsese project that everybody's calling a masterpiece. So help me help me understand. Help me help me square these two things that uh, it does, in fact, have flaws. It does, in fact, still center white men at the center of the story you heard me say a moment ago that from what i've read in interviews with with scorsese uh he was concerned about that when uh, they were in the middle of script development it took a couple few years to do this he paused the script writing went to meet with the osage people to get their involvement because he didn't want the story to be uh told uh overly uh, uh from the perspective of these white men i hear you another suggesting that it still in fact does that and yet you and countless others have called it a masterpiece, and to your point, the single most important work of his entire career. Square those two things for me, Kevin Powell. Well, absolutely. First and foremost, a masterpiece, a simple definition, just means an outstanding work of artistry, skill sets, workmanship. Mm-hmm. And for me, I'm writing a review of this film for a couple of reasons. One, as a cultural critic, the, the direction, the cinematography, the acting is incredible. The music, the score, the, the late Robbie Robertson just created for it is incredible. So it is high art. You're talking about Martin Scorsese, Mean Streets, Taxi Drivers, Raging Bull, Casino, Goodfellas. This is someone who's made some of the most important movies of the last 50 years in American cinematic history. And when I say this is the most important work, because I've seen all of his work, basically. He's done 27 feature films. I'm a huge fan of his. But I also say purposely in the title of my film, even with his flaws, because what I noticed as I was reading the critiques of the New York Times, Billboard, all these other places, the same blind spots that Scorsese has around race and racism in his film are the same blind spots that all these other critics have. Mm. Whereas I break down, here is why it's problematic, the omission of indigenous people at the center of the story. That's the big difference. And so I think both things can exist. We can acknowledge great art. I can say I love the Beatles, for example. They're one of the greatest bands ever. But I also can acknowledge the Beatles borrowed most of their stuff from black musicians, be it Nina Simone, the Izzy Brothers, et cetera. But I can't diss their musicianship and their songwriting, but I can say, listen, there's something problematic here about how they're acknowledged while they were also heavily borrowing from Little Richard, the Izzy Brothers, Nina Simone, and other black artists. And I think the same thing is here. So it's high art, but he could have gone further if they actually centered the women, the, the indigenous community in the film, and they did not. That's the big problem. Yep. Uh, I guess the question is what you think, uh, given that it is Martin Scorsese, uh, his imprint in this industry is huge, and to your point, he has a, a serious uh, body of work, um, a serious corpus. Um, I'm, I'm wondering whether or not, at the very least, at a minimum, you think that this by Scorsese, this project by him, at least starts a conversation, changes the tenor, the flavor of what we're going to get from Hollywood in the years to come, given the treatment that he gave this film that does, in fact, put white men at the center, but uh, but frames the story in a way that we've not seen framed heretofore. I guess my question is whether or not you think that Martin Scorsese has started something that will continue to at least push this narrative in the right direction. 
I hope so, but I hope what it really starts is what the Native American sister Twyla Baker said to me this weekend, which is that we need to see, just like we needed, we pushed for black filmmakers, as you know, Tav, as well, going back to the 70s, the 80s, all of the things we've seen. We need, we need indigenous filmmakers because mm-hmm. only we understand how to center our stories. You know, and I think that, you know, it's going to involve people having to humble themselves and say, you know what, maybe I can just be the producer of this, but let's get an indigenous director in here or let me bring in indigenous writers that, yeah, they hired indigenous consultants, but a consultant just means you give your opinion to something. A writer is actually in there in the room helping to shape the story. That's the big problem with this film. Mm-hmm. I wonder um, if you can tell me the ways in which you think that black uh, viewers, black filmmakers um, will see this film, particularly with regard to relating to the indignities that the Osage had to suffer. That's a great question, Tavis. You know, a lot of people were texting me who read the piece or who saw the film. I got two reactions from black people. I saw the film and I cried because I thought about black people. A lot of folks referenced Roots. Remember when we were kids mm-hmm. growing up and we watched Roots? Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, and, and how traumatic this thing is. And a, a number of black folks said to me they don't want to see the film because of what we've been through. Just like you hear a lot of black folks saying, I don't want to see any more movies about, about slavery. I don't want to mm-hmm. see any more TV shows about slavery. I think that it's hard for us to, to live through art that we feel is traumatic. And to the indigenous sister's point, Dr. Twyla Baker, uh, uh, the college president out in the Dakota, says, you know, the problem really isn't telling these stories, whether it's about what we went through with segregation or slavery or even George Floyd, anything like that. The problem is when we constantly get stories that are traumatic and there's nothing else to balance it out. And we think as bad as black folks, when the think about the dirt of stuff we've had, the very little things that we've had with film and TV shows, imagine if you're Latinx, Asian, or indigenous, mm-hmm. you know, they've had, they've had even less. And so I think black folks definitely don't want to relive traumas, but if we did, we said, yeah, this is our story too. Yeah. Since you went there, let me follow you. Um, what do you say specifically, specifically to black folk uh, who, who say, and many do, they don't want to see anything else that's trauma related. They certainly don't want to see any more slave films. Like if you are a director or you're a writer, no matter how good your project is, um, you run the risk of a bunch of black folk just writing it off before it's ever in the theaters because there are a bunch of Negroes who just don't want to see anything else about slavery ever again. And even though there have been many of those stories, I hear your point about a lack of balance, but there are still, I, I, I have to believe, there are still so many stories about the slavery era, about our humanity, about our about our dignity that have not yet been told. But again, if you're a black filmmaker and you even dare to do a film about the slavery era, you know there are a bunch of folk that ain't going to see it uh, just on GP, because they don't want to see anything else about slavery again. You know what's deep about what you said? I started laughing when you said it, not because it's funny, but because it brought back a memory. I'm not going to name the A-list black actor, but a couple years ago I was working with Ken Morris, who you may know, Tavis. Mm-hmm. He's there in California, and he's a descendant of Frederick Douglass. And we were we were talking about, uh, uh, I was working at the time on a film version of Frederick Douglass' life story. Frederick Douglass is a superhero. This is someone who learned how to read and write as an enslaved person. As you know, we know, to escape from slavery and became one of the most incredible black leaders of, of, the, of, the, of the 1800s and was the most photographed person in the country. The act just said to me, no, nah, man, I want to know some movies about slavery. I was like, it's Frederick Douglass, brother. This is a story. <laughs> this is a story of liberation. He escaped it. But that's, I mean, I think that, Tavis, to your point, there's something that is blocking us as a people. And I felt that with the indigenous community folks that I've talked to as well. We were, we've been so traumatized by the oppression that we've experienced in this country that we don't, we don't even want to deal with stories or even conversations that talk about segregation or slavery. We're not going to get past all the traumas that we carry around from generation to generation if we're not willing to confront these stories. I'm not saying we don't need comedy, we don't need romance, we need all of it. We need black music that is balanced, like we had. A, we talked about it on your last show. We need all of that. But I do think we have to be willing to do a deep dive. What did this do to us? And that's really 
I think, with the indigenous community is grappling with. Because what the sister kept saying to me, Dr. Twyla Baker, this weekend, as we were texting back and forth, this is actually forcing a necessary conversation around trauma with the indigenous community, which I actually think is necessary. Mm-hmm. Uh, to your point about Brother Morris, I do know him. He was a guest on this program a few weeks back, as a matter of fact. So, uh, oh, wow. Yeah, he was wow. just, just on uh, on this program uh, not long ago. So I, I do know him, and uh, we were pleased to, again, uh, have a dialogue with him uh, on, on this program. Uh, another question or two about, about black folk particularly. Um, we, we, we often say in this country, even when we are well-meaning, and this audience has heard me say this more than once, and I, I come back to it time and time again, because I want to make sure that we're in the right frame and that we, that, we, that we say things that are true and that are real and that are accurate. Uh, and one of the things we've said for, you know, for, 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 for eons is that slavery was America's original sin. All kinds of learned black folk have advanced that notion. And in truth, it's not real. Um, slavery was not America's original sin. Uh, we know what happened to the Native Americans. That's America's original sin. And I'm wondering whether or not you think, again, this film does anything to write that particular narrative. That's a brother. You got me in my toes today, Mr. Tavis. Smiley. <laughs> <laughs> you know, seriously, indigenous people were the original inheritors of this landmass that we call Africa. Now, as, as scholars, people who read, you and I, we know that people like Dr. Ivan Van Sertimer wrote books like they came before Columbus, that there were black people all over the world mm-hmm. long before this thing called enslavement. Mm-hmm. But what we're talking about in the context of America and the so-called founding of this country that they'll be celebrating for 250 years in 2026 is that these folks who are called Native Americans, Indians, indigenous people were here and they were savagely the victims of genocide, pushed off their land all over the place. You know, and we need to understand even the lie that I talk about in the article that, you know, about them selling, you know, Manhattan, the island of Manhattan, New York City for $24 in trinkets. They did not believe that anyone owned the land, that, the, that it belonged to everyone. And so the fact that there's only 8.75 million people who are indigenous in this country in 2023, you have to ask the question that I ask in the essay, what happened to them? They were the first victims of massive genocide. Now, certainly, in my opinion, slavery was a, 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 a system, a, a genocidal thing that happened to us as well. But I think that black folks cannot forget, as we're talking about our own oppression and things we've had to deal with, these indigenous folks, because many of us have not even encountered more than a couple of indigenous people in our lifetimes because there are so few left in this country. Yeah. I, I wonder, let, let me let me pivot again here. Since, since you said I got you on your toes, let me keep you on your toes. You're, you're pretty good on your yes, toes. Sir. So let me let, yes, me, let me keep you there. Um, we discussed this in our first hour, and we've been discussing it, you know, every day for obvious reasons, the Israel-Hamas situation. And and I wonder whether or not you think it is the case that so many African-Americans, I've been reading the commentary everywhere, uh, whether it's everyday black people or Black Lives Matter but or black scholars or presidential candidates like Cornel West, so many black people uh, are empathizing with the plight of the Palestinian people, in part because I think we realize that they live in the world's largest open-air prison. Uh, and so it is, again, our relationship to being disfranchised disenfranchised it's our relationship to that trauma uh, that allows us i think at our best at our best to identify with others who are being put upon that's my view that many of us relate to the palestinians in that regard on the other hand uh most black folk are christians and we are followers of that first century Palestinian Jew named Jesus. And so you've got a lot of black folk who are down with the Jews just because uh, we serve a risen savior named Jesus. Again, a first century Palestinian Jew. It's important to underscore that for folk who don't uh, really know the hermeneutics or really don't understand the, the, the lineage or the ideology here that we're talking about when you talk about Jesus. The, 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 point, I'm, right. the point I'm pressing toward is whether or not you think that we 
um, do in fact connect with the suffering of everyday people around the globe in large measure because of what we have endured. Absolutely. That's exactly what it is. And it's really complex for a lot of us because you're right. I mean, I'm a Christian and I've heard folks say that they're siding strictly with Israel and Jewish folks because they are Christian. Sure, sure. You know, then you have black folks who are saying what you're saying, which is look at what's happening to them. That looks very similar to what black folks experience in America, in South Africa during apartheid, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And I think I think the the bigger problem for me that's happening, and I'm glad you brought the question up, and I'm gonna be on another radio show later today is are we even allowed to have these kind of conversations where we can talk about the range of expressions and emotions that people are feeling? Yes. Because what I feel like what's been happening is a shutting down. There's a, a Jewish brother who just was interviewed on NPR. I can't think of his name, but he's a scholar of Jewish studies at UCLA, right there in, in L.A. where you are. And he talked about, you know, he's saying what a lot of people said, I condemn any form of terrorism, what happened to people, you know, in, in Israel, on the border of southern Gaza Strip in, in, in Israel, uh, I'm sorry, the the uh, the northern uh, the, yes, in, in in the Gaza Strip, on the border of Gaza Strip in Israel is, is tragic, but it's also tragic to see what's happening to Palestinians, and he's been attacked, and mm-hmm. several people are being attacked, and so we got to ask ourselves, you know, what does and what Black people are asking, I believe, is what does justice look like for all people? What does freedom look like for all people? You know, what does an opportunity to have a life look like for all people? And I think that's a legitimate question, particularly when we talk about Black people in the context of America. And Tavis, you know this as well as anyone we have in this country. You can't talk about American struggle for freedom and real democracy without talking about the struggles and sacrifices of Black people from pre-Revolutionary War period, mm-hmm. Revolutionary War period, abolitionist movement, civil war, segregation, civil rights movement. There's no American America today, where we could even have these kind of conversations if it wasn't for black folks, and to see people trying to silence black people from even having any kind of range of emotions is actually anti-human and anti-democratic, and is not what we say we stand for, and that's that's part of the challenge. And I think that's why you also see black folks pushing back like nah. And I think what's also troubling to people who want to control the conversation, unfortunately, mm-hmm. is that with social media you cannot control the conversation because folks are just looking stuff up, posting stuff. They're asking questions like, well, what does the word genocide mean? What does the word terrorism mean? You know, what is this history of these folks that call themselves Israeli and Palestinian? What is the Gaza Strip? What is Tel Aviv? What is Jerusalem? Why is there East Jerusalem? What is the West Bank? What is what is settler? What does the settler culture mean? And I think it's important to ask those questions, because if the real goal is love and peace and people coming together, then you've got to have those uncomfortable conversations. But if you're really trying to just keep people apart and not together. And this is why I go back to Scorsese's film, because people have even said to me, Tavis, that this film has led them to think about what's happening in the Middle East, which is really interesting, because it's really, to some people's minds, the same kind of situation. Now, people might take offense to that, but I'm like, you can't control what people are thinking and feeling when they see a work of art. And they're like, well, look at what happened here. Does that mean, is that the same thing that's happening over here? Mm-hmm. People have a right to just ask questions, and we lose our moral authority in the spirit of Dr. King and other folks of the civil rights era if we're not even willing to ask hard convert have hard, hard, difficult conversations if we really want peace at the end of the day i want peace i don't want to see anyone no matter who they are dying unnecessarily and suffering yeah. unnecessarily you Speak, know? speaking of our inability um i'm glad you i'm glad you framed that uh, for me speaking of our inability to have difficult conversations and people who get canceled in this country people are losing jobs students are losing employment opportunities at law firms and etc uh, people are getting canceled um just for saying and expressing themselves about uh, Israel and Hamas in this war. It's a it's a it's a it's a tightrope to be sure. And I'm a talk show host. I'm walking this tightrope every day. It's a tightrope to even have this conversation. And I'm not sure it ought to be that way. I agree with Kevin in that regard. Um, to that end, when we come forward, I got a message yesterday from Minister Farrakhan. 
And I want to tell you what 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 he's doing and what he had to say about this. If you haven't heard it yet, um, I was texted directly and I'm going to share with you the text I got uh, from the brother minister's office yesterday. You don't want to miss this. When we come forward with Kevin Powell, you're listening to Tavis Smile. Hope, agency, dignity. This is Tavis Smiley. Can you dig it? Come on! May Fresh Daily in the Mert Park, Los Angeles, California. You're listening to Tavis Smiley. Tavis Smiley and Kevin Powell as our guest. Uh, we are talking about um, the Martin Scorsese film, Killers of the Flower Moon, which premiered this weekend in movie theaters all across the country. Uh, and uh, the controversy surrounding it, um, putting white men at the center of that story. And yet everybody is calling it a masterpiece, including, I guess, Kevin Powell. Um, if you have not seen it, uh, we don't want to give you any spoiler alerts, but it, it is worth um, it's worth seeing. Uh, it's uh, another fine project brought to you by the brilliant director, again, Martin Scorsese, whose body of work is um, <laughs> is to be lauded. He's done so much great stuff. Uh, and again, people are calling this a masterpiece, even though it has its flaws. Uh, Kevin Powell argues in a piece that he wrote for Vibe, uh, his, mu- his movie review for Vibe magazine. You can find it and read it for yourself. He, he calls it a masterpiece uh, and the best piece of art that Scorsese's done, again, never mind the flaws that are in the film. But just before the break, um, Kevin uh, was teeing up a powerful conversation that I want to continue right now uh, about how difficult it is uh, in this country. Uh, I, I Let me back up. I asked Kevin a question about, uh, about whether or not uh, we as black people uh, can relate to the plight of Native Americans because slavery was not this country's original sin. What they, what they did to Native Americans was the original sin. So we're well-intentioned when we say that. And I make, I make, uh, I do not make light of what we have endured, but it was not this country's original sin. And we were talking about whether or not, in case you've just tuned in, whether or not it is our own journey that allows us to relate to people who are being devalued, disenfranchised, demeaned, and frankly, murdered, uh, like Native Americans and like uh, Palestinians and like South Africans, of course, uh, who, who are our brothers and sisters in black. Um, but we were just trying to uh, teeing up this dialogue about what it is that allows us to respect and to tap into the humanity and dignity of other people. Uh, and uh, I mentioned Minister Farrakhan, who I got a message from over the weekend, and you can actually Google the story now yourself. It's out everywhere. Uh, but he has filed a $5 billion defamation suit, $5 billion defamation suit against the ADL the Anti-Defamation League, over false, what he calls, false anti-Semitism claims. Uh, He filed the lawsuit in Manhattan federal court against this group, accusing it of interfering with his First Amendment rights by wrongly labeling him an anti-Semite. Let me quote now. This lawsuit is to ensure that the abuse, misuse, and false use of the terms anti-Semite, anti-Semitic, and anti-Semitism as falsely charged by the ADL is permanently barred from being a tool to defame and stifle the exercise of constitutional rights, uh, close quote. That's what he contends in his court papers. He goes on to say he's never harmed a hair on the head of any Jewish person or ever advocated for such and boasted that he honors, respects, and even admires many members of the Jewish community, including his boyhood idol and one of the greatest violinists, Joshua Heifetz, who was a Russian Jew and his own Jewish violin teachers. Uh, Mr. Farrakhan, in case you don't know, plays violin and, and plays quite well. Uh, he was taught by some Jewish violin teachers, and so that's his take. I, I, I'm, 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 I'm raising this, Kevin, for the obvious reason. You, you see where I'm going here. Because you were talking about how difficult it is for black people and others, for that matter, in this moment. People are being canceled left and right. 
I'm trying to be careful here myself. Folk are being canceled left and right for even trying to engage a conversation. Just talk about what's happening in the in the Middle East with Israel and Hamas. And you say the wrong thing. People are losing jobs. They're losing opportunities. Students are catching hell um, all across the board. People are being canceled because of saying the wrong thing, as it were, about what's happening in Israel uh, uh, and Gaza. And here you have Minister Farrakhan now suing the ADL for a too liberal use of the term anti-Semite, anti-Semitic, anti-Semitism. Your thoughts on that? Well, I can only speak for myself and someone who has a deep regard for all people, including black people, and certainly someone who has lived in New York for a long time, and there's many folks in my life who are Jewish. And I think if we're going to say that we want to have empathy, we want empathy for our cause and our, our experiences. And I think we also have to understand why some Jewish folks feel the way they do because of what they experience, including the Holocaust. And it is true that anti-Semitism is real. I can't speak for anything that's happened that you're talking about. This is news to me to hear this, but I, I can't comment on that at all. But what I will say is, you know, any loss of life is tragic to me. I think, you know, it's tragic that this is happening. You know, and I can tell you, Tavis, it's interesting that this whole thing is happening now because myself and some other black folks, we're actually planning on going to both Israel and Palestine sometime next year. We actually invited to, 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 to tour the country as influencers out of New York City, progressive influencers. Mm-hmm. And I'm actually looking forward to that trip more than ever because of all the stuff that we're talking about here. And so, you know, I think that, 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 that there's that part of it, but I also think that, yeah, you know, I have friends who are Jewish, you know, who are saying they're afraid to say something because they're being told that they're anti-Jewish, that's Jewish sellouts, all mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. There's a whole bunch of stuff that's happening, you know, because it all is very confusing to people. And I just think that, you know, we've got to really take a collective breath as a country, you know, because people are paying attention to America, as they always do, right. and really talk about this. And I feel like some of the conversations need to happen are certainly people who are Jewish and Middle Eastern or Arab. I think Jewish folks and black folks need to have some conversations, very serious dialogue. I've been saying this for a very long time. And I think that this country needs to have some very serious dialogue around uh, about identity, cultural identity, racial identity, all of it, and what it means for us as, as we go forward. Because all this stuff is, keeps coming up. It keeps coming up because we have never had real conversations with it. You were way back in the day during the Clinton years. There was an effort to try to have a conversation around race. That's almost 30 years ago. And mm-hmm. we really, we've never... We've never even done what South Africa did to have a smiley, which is let's have a truth and reconciliation sure, commission sure. committee to talk about what is this history of this place and how has it affected us. And I think that's part of the reason I think I think that hasn't happened in the Middle East and it certainly has not happened in America, which is why you see all this confusion and what can you say, what can you not say? People are afraid to even like stuff or tag stuff or forward stuff. You know, and this is this is black folks. This is everyday white folks. This is Jewish folks. This is Arab folks. I literally, I mean, I literally this morning read a piece by a Jewish writer from UCLA, as I said earlier, talking about he, you know, he's been attacked. I read a piece on CNN by a, a Middle Eastern writer, you know, out of Arizona, who said the same thing. An Arab brother. I'm like, this is crazy to me. But it says to me, wait a minute, we don't really understand who we are, and that's why we're all bugging out. And yeah. there's someone I believe that's pulling these strings and like, let's just keep pitting people against each other. Yeah. I'm not with that, man. I'm not with that. I can't yeah. support that. See, for me, this is, uh, and, with, with all due respect to Brother Minister Farrakhan, this is, uh, for me, more than just an issue of free speech. That is important, to be sure. No question about that. Free speech. We discussed in the first hour whether or not the gag order that a black judge has imposed against Donald Trump infringes on his right to free speech. For me, it's more than just about free speech. It's about what you just said. It's about getting to um, a place where we can respect the humanity and the dignity of all people 
and have conversations that can be difficult to have. Um, but in those conversations, we don't shut people down. We don't cancel people for expressing a particular point of view. Let me put this final point on it and I'll move on. I've said for many years that everything that white folks say and do is not racist. Sometimes it's born of ignorance. It's not racist. It's ignorant. And I'm always counseling black people not to call everything racist. It's like the boy who cried wolf. Everything that white folks say and do is not racist. Sometimes it is just ignorant. Follow my through line here. Everything that people say about what's happening between Israel and Hamas is not anti-Semitic. I'm not an anti-Semite. I have a point of view. I want to lovingly and respectfully share that point of view. I want to engage in dialogue. But when you call everybody racist, it shuts down the conversation. Could just be ignorance. When you call somebody anti-Semitic or an anti-Semite, it shuts down the conversation. They could just have a different point of view than you. I digress. When we come forward, I want to ask uh, Kevin Powell one final question about the film, which got us into all this, uh, Killers of the Flower Moon, the new film by Martin Scorsese, and what he thinks success is for that film. Obviously, uh, Scorsese and others are looking at the box office, um, but what does Kevin Powell think success of this masterpiece would be. And then we'll spend the rest of our time talking about his masterpiece, his new book, The Kevin Powell Reader. You're listening to Kevin Powell on Tavis Smiley. What's your quarrel with the world? You're listening to Tavis Smiley. Sounds different, huh? This is Tavis Smiley. Kevin Powell, your um, your intellectual property production is prodigious. And I guess when you've written 15 books, uh, written countless cover stories, hundreds of published pieces like the one we discussed today in Vibe about this new film from Martin Scorsese. Definitive writings on iconic figures from Stacey Abrams to Dave Chappelle, Kerry Washington, Sidney Poitier, Cicely Tyson, Kobe Bryant, Tupac Shakur, Aretha, Kendrick Lamar, and so many others. Uh, you've got enough content to put together a Kevin Powell reader. Um, you can't do a reader unless you've done a whole lot of writing. Uh, and so tell me, uh, tell me a bit more about the Kevin Powell reader, Kevin Powell. Well, I mean, it's, it's really tied to what we're talking about today. I mean, since I was a young writer, starting with the black press, and I got to shout out black black media like yours. I started off with places like the Amsterdam News and, and, and Afro-American newspaper and places like that. And I've just been trying to answer this question of my entire journey since the, since the 80s. It's just like, you know, what does it mean to be a black person in this country and on this planet, you know? And I think that that's a legitimate question. And I was thinking hard during the commercial break, you know, um, not just about my book, because it's, it's bigger than me, you know. You know, you said it, Tavis, a moment ago, you know, I'm just trying to ask questions. And I've always, you know, I think, you know, what we're all struggling for is our full humanity as a people, as black people, you know, as Jewish people, as Palestinian people, as any people, no matter how we identify ourselves. And I think any of us, no matter who, how we identify ourselves, if we say that we are anti-oppression, anti-doing that happening to us, we can't turn around and do it to other people. And mm-hmm. so I want to end it on a positive note. I do think that, that, you know, I can't wait to get to that part of the world sometime next year. I want to go more than ever because of what's happening over there, you know, in, in Israel and Palestine. But I also think there's some conversations we've got to have in this country because when I look at this history, 
you know, uh, uh, we have too many examples of folks figuring out ways to work together to make some things happen. I mean, one of the most beautiful moments I ever saw in my life was the summer of 2020 in the middle of COVID when you saw all these folks coming out there because of what happened to Brother George Floyd. Yeah. But it can't just be because of a tragedy. we got to figure this out because the world literally is watching us. They are. Yeah, uh, I took that trip much earlier in my career. I've been to Israel a few times, but uh, but on, wow. um, on, on one of those trips— wow. One of those trips, although it was not on our schedule, uh, a friend of mine and I on the trip snuck away to go to Palestine. We wanted to see we wanted to see the other side, and um, the, the 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 Jewish organization that had invited us uh, on this trip w- weren't interested, of course, in showing the other side. But we wanted to see it, and so we dipped away uh, and went to the other side. So I, I know what uh, what it's like. Uh, it's been a while since I've done that, but I'm anxious to hear your take on it. When you get back from that trip, you come on this program and let us know what you saw on both sides. Uh, whenever that does, in fact, happen, let me close in the two minutes I have left with this question. Since you again raised this, I, I want to uh, to to offer this as the exit question. What have you learned uh, that you can share in two minutes at least about what it does, in fact, mean to be human in a, how might I put it, a melanin-infused body? <laughs> wow. Two minutes? <laughs> yeah. Brother, thank God for God that I believe in. Thank God for therapy for 30 years. Thank mm. God for my progressive black church in Harlem, New York. Thank God for my mama and the wisdom she gave me from South Carolina. Thank God for black laughter, black joy, black mm. comedy, black music. Mm. Thank God for Tavis and all the black folks who care about black folks because it is, brother, we talked about it in our last show. As a black man, I'm thankful to be alive in my 50s because I'm seeing people all around me not making it. I'm mm. just, that's what it means to be in this, this melanin-infused body. Like, you just, you know, and I, what I'm trying to get to, Tavis, for your listeners, Let's not just survive. Let's figure out, even amidst all this craziness, how can we thrive? Even if we ain't got no money, mm-hmm. find some joy somewhere. Find some joy somewhere. That's what it means for me. Um, that's the goal. I tell folk all the time. It's not about uh, being happy. Happy is temporal. Uh, happiness uh, comes and goes. What you're trying to find uh, in life is joy. And what I've discovered is that uh, is that the ultimate joy can be found in loving and serving other people. There's quite no joy. Yeah. There, there's no joy uh, quite like the joy you find in loving and serving other people. That's what Dr. King said all the time. Anybody can be great because anybody can serve. All it takes is a heart full of grace and a soul generated by love. You want some joy? Love and serve other people. That's where you'll find your joy. On that note, I digress. The book is called The Kevin Powell Reader, available now wherever fine books are sold, as they say. Kevin Powell, always, I always delight in our dialogues, and this is another one I'll uh, put in my in my body of, uh, of great work. So thank you for your time, sir. I appreciate you. Thank you. I appreciate you. Have a blessed day. Good to have you on. Same to you.